Hey there, and welcome to Living Through It, a podcast for interesting times. I'm your host, Elizabeth Cronice McLaughlin, a recovering lawyer, world-renowned leadership expert, and lifelong progressive activist and organizer. Reminder that if you want to listen to this podcast ad-free, you can head on over to patreon.com slash living through it. That's patreon.com slash living through it. You can get access to our entire back catalog ad-free there. And also we have some special bonuses for our most favored listeners. Thanks so much for being here. And now here's this week's episode. Hey, welcome back to Living Through It. I'm so excited about our guest this week. This is an interview that uh, is really near and dear to my heart. We are welcoming this week Representative Joaquin Castro to the podcast. And uh, I have known Representative Castro since the family separation crisis under the Trump administration. I have found him to be so lovely and so kind and someone who really walks the talk of great government service, both in my interactions with him prior to now and in this interview. And I think you're going to find it really inspiring, really motivating, very to the point. Um, And, you know, he is just a remarkable example of what great government representation can look like. So without further ado, here is my interview with Representative Joaquin Castro. Enjoy. And welcome back. I'm so excited we are welcoming Representative Joaquin Castro to the podcast today. Uh, You and I have known each other for several years now, uh, and I need to say first and foremost, congratulations on your reelection. It was no surprise to me. Um, but I know we're heading into what will be in 2023, your 10th year in Congress. So um, you've been serving for a long time now. Um, you know, we had kind of interesting midterm results in Texas. I think there were some disappointments there, as well as some surprising victories. And, you know, we're we're taping this about two weeks out. I'm curious to get your kind of takeaways on how things look in your great state. Well, you know, for a long time, there's been talk about Texas finally going blue or becoming purple. And and even though uh, I wish that the races had ended up closer, Bethel and, and you know, our lieutenant governor candidate, Rochelle Godson, Rand G, uh, I still believe that we're moving in the right direction. And, you know, the reason I part of the reason I say that is because there's really three political weather conditions that a political party runs in. Uh, the most difficult conditions are the ones we just ran in, which is when you have your president in office in the White House and you're running in your midterm. And, you know, usually when when you're in those conditions, you get popped. You look at what happened to Democrats in 2010 and 2014. You look at what happened to Republicans when President Trump was in office in 2018. So uh, for us to be able to hold on the United States Senate and also to to lose only several seats in the U.S. House of Representatives, which, by the way, I don't believe we would have lost if this had not been a redistricting year. If this had not been after a redistricting year, I don't think the Republicans would have picked up any seats. I think it might have been a break even. Uh, And in Texas, Greg Abbott won in 2014, just eight years ago, by about 21 points. In 2018, four years ago, he won by about 13 and a half. And this year he won by 11. So I realize that it's slow progress. It's not what any of us wanted, uh, but I still fundamentally believe that in Texas, we're moving in the right direction. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm, I know a lot of activists in Texas, and I have two people on my own staff, one in Austin and one in Dallas, who uh, have been doing their own part, working really hard to kind of move the needle down there. And, you know, I think a lot of folks feel like it's probably more of a suppressed state than a red state. And, you know, I think how this shakes out in the next few years is going to be really interesting to watch. Um, you know, one of the things that was interesting to me about the results, though, was that we saw um, some fairly significant chunks of Democratic votes along the border, which I think surprised a lot of people who were looking at it from kind of a, a national standpoint. You know, you and I, um, we got to know each other during the family separation policy under the Trump administration. And, you know, I know you're as disturbed about this as I am, but the way in which like immigration and xenophobia and this idea of, you know, swarms of people coming over the border and all of that racist language uh, seems to come up from the far right whenever they're trying to distract from a lack of policy. And I'm just curious how you're seeing immigration right now in Texas from a Texas perspective and also what it feels like on the ground there right now. In Texas, more than any other state, immigration and the border are used as the number one boogeyman by Republicans. And you've got 1,200 miles of border between Texas and Mexico, so way more than any other state in the United States. So Republicans have very successfully at times used that to instill fear, division, resentment among Texans against folks that are immigrating or seeking asylum, even though this is a state where, and a country where people have immigrated from all over the world. Uh, my own grandmother came here when she was six or seven years old as an orphan. Uh, from Coahuila, Mexico, a northern state in Mexico. Our Senator Ted Cruz talks about the story of his father coming with $50 in his underwear from Cuba in the late 50s or early 1960s. Uh, and still, they, they, they very actively, especially when there's a Democrat in the White House, because then they can blame Democrats for everything and say that there's open borders and that these people are basically coming to harm everybody. But, but it's, it's interesting, Elizabeth, because what it does is it becomes for Republicans a substitute for actually having to solve problems in people's lives. So if I if they can scare Texans about these people coming to harm everybody, then they don't really have to do anything to fix the electrical grid, which went out and killed uh, hundreds of people in Texas. You know, they don't have to actually do anything about making our our kids safer in schools uh, or figure or, or doing gun reform. Uh, or expanding Medicaid, even though Texas has the highest percentage of people that don't have any health care coverage at all. So it's become not only a boogeyman, but a substitute for doing any kind of real work to improve people's lives. Uh, instead, you make them angry and you redirect the fear and the anger and the resentment at, at or what mostly are these brown folks who are seeking asylum uh, in the United States. Uh, that becomes tougher politically when there's a Republican in the White House. It's harder than for them. They're not going to go, for example, blame Donald Trump for everything wrong at the border, right? You know, so it's interesting how the politics of the issue, even within a few years, depending on who's in the White House, uh, changes a bit. And it's hard to watch, you know. I mean, I ha I have to say that, um, you know, I'm I I still think about those kids who who will never yeah. be reunited with the families, the hundreds of kids where they can't find the parents, you know, and yeah. and all the damage that was done under that administration, and the ways in which you know we continue to grapple with all of this, even 
you know, with the COVID restrictions and some deportations that have taken place under this administration, it's 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 painful. Um, and yeah. you know, my hope is really that um, we stop seeing this as uh, you know, I hate the term culture war, but we stop seeing this as like a culture war issue and really start seeing it as more of a humanitarian challenge. Um, right. You know, I um, in San Antonio we hosted the first. Uh, I think it was like June first, twenty eighteen. Uh, the first rally uh, against family separation to reunite the, the kids who were being separated from their parents, their families. And you're right. I mean, you still have hundreds of kids who are separated right now from their parents, despite uh, efforts by the Biden administration that put a commission together and so forth, trying to do the work of reuniting them. Um, and that is going to be, that will continue to be, I think, for a long time, an incredible moral stain on our nation and on the Trump administration and the people who participated in that. Yeah, it's um, and it's tough to watch the same lingo by the same people being rolled out over and over again. I mean, Stephen Miller was doing this just right before the midterms. I, you know, I, I, I long for accountability for this. It's one of those issues that just gets me so much in the heart. Um, well, that brings us to a kind of an interesting question because we are in a situation now post midterms where by a very slim majority, the Republicans are going to take the House. And, you know, you've served before under a Republican majority in the House. <laughs> I, this seems yeah. to me to be a really different lay of the land than when, <laughs> when yeah. it was previously the case. Um, albeit, you know, the last time was in the early days of the Trump administration. You know, I'm curious as to... Um, not just your predictions, but also what you're, what strategically you're thinking about, because I'm seeing some noise out there about, you know, the potential of collaborating with moderate Republicans. I'm a little wary about whether or not those even exist anymore, um, but about whether or not there, there is a true opportunity here with a majority this slim uh, to still do good, right? I'm a little worried about the agenda getting stuck and what that, what that's all going to look like. So what are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, first, to the last part of your question, I hope that there is opportunity because we still have the White House. We may have an even larger, just by a person, but a larger Senate majority as Democrats in the Senate. And we will be in the minority in the House. Uh, it may be 220, it may be 221, uh, so by about five or six people, right? Um, so I hope that we can still do good things. It would be a shame if the next two years go by and all of this momentum, all of the great things that were done in, in the first half of President Biden's term all of a sudden go away. Yeah. Uh, so we're still looking up for opportunities for that. That said, it is going to, we are going to be existing, I think, in a chaotic political environment because Kevin McCarthy is going to be trying to herd cats who don't like him. Uh, and it's going to be very tough for him. And we saw this with John Boehner, where, uh, where, where, you, where you see the challenge for them is where they realize, and hopefully Kevin McCarthy will be a speaker who realizes that he's got to soberly help govern the country. You've got to pass a budget, or you've, you've got to do the appropriations. You've got to uh, extend the debt limit, for example. There are certain things that you've got to do to keep government running. And the problem they get into is that you've got Republicans who don't want to be responsible, who don't want to, they want the country to crash, some of them, right? And with a slim majority, He's likely going to have to do what John Boehner did, which is to go to Hakeem Jeffries, who will be the Democratic leader, and ask for Democratic votes for help. Um, and then what that does is it engenders even more spite and resentment from 
that very right wing of the Republican Party. I mean, they're all right wing at this point, but I would say like the far, far right wing, the majority yep. Taylor Greens, the Lauren Boebert's, the Matt Gaetzes, uh, and then I'm, I'm sure a few new people that are coming in. So then there's this constant tension between him and those folks. Um, and so that's what I'm expecting. And the concessions that he's going to have to make to them that he's making now, investigate Hunter Biden, uh, you know, go go and start trying to ban books, a national abortion ban, all of these very far right things that, by the way, are unpopular with the American people. Uh, but for him to be speaker and to win their support, to win every vote he needs, he's going to have to go promise those things. And that's what he's doing now. Yeah, it really worries me because, you know, we look at the kind of real challenges, I think, of what the country's facing. And I want to get to that in a minute with you. But I mean, I don't understand how average everyday Americans two years from now are going to look at the use of taxpayer dollars and the amount of time that's going to be wasted on things like Hunter Biden's laptop and these threats to impeach Kamala Harris and all these wild things that we're hearing out of the far right of the party when we really have significant issues facing the country, right? You know, like the answer to inflation is not right. to investigate Hunter Biden's laptop. Um, so I'll be interested to see how it shakes out. I mean, I know there's a certain percentage of the country that is just going to seemingly swallow this. And that's really upsetting. You know, disinformation has taken so many American minds and divided so many families. And I would like to find an immediate cure for that. But it doesn't seem to me that this is a recipe for winning on their part, which also makes it all the more curious, right? Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, not only are they going to have a messy time in the House of Representatives, but remember, this is also in the backdrop of a presidential primary for them that is going to ramp up. And, you know, I mean, look, we had a very spirited like primary on our end in 2020, where we had 24, 25 candidates in the primary. Um, but they're going to have a situation where you've got Donald Trump, who's already announced he's coming back, and then uh, Ron DeSantis and others who are intending on running as well. So for policy, that makes it very tough because you know, there's a tendency during that time to kind of for, for the folks in the House of Representatives to take their cues from what's being said on the debate stage in the presidential debates. Um, and what's going to be said in the presidential debate is all the far right stuff. You know, that's what the, that's what's going to be talked about and proposed and so forth. You know, so that's going to be that's going to make it tough. You know, that's going to make it tough to to work with. Kevin McCarthy and the Republican majority, you know, that said, you know, there, there, there are, it's true, like there are bills every day that we're in session that are non-controversial bills where we do work across the aisle, uh, but on a lot of the marquee issues that, that really matter for Americans, um, Republicans have done, decided to go to the far right. Yeah. And I mean, I guess, you know, to me, one of the things that I think is so key is that we on the other side of the fence really need to continue putting forward this vision of the future that we want to build, in my opinion, you know, that right. we we stand for certain values and that we believe in democracy and uh, we believe in participatory democracy and not autocracy and not cults in the form of yeah. leadership. And and yet we're also going to be facing down the challenge of all this noise coming out of, you know, the House committees, I think, that that's going to make it really tough. So I'm hoping that we can kind of stand in the space of sanity and democracy together <laughs> and hopefully heading into 2024 can can use that. Yeah. And I think I think, you know, you know, to what you said, I think the American people in the 2022 election started along that path. You know, I was saying before the election this has got to be an election. It's got to be a unicorn election, right? Where, you know, we, you know that you usually get popped really bad in the midterms when you're the incumbent party. 
I, I was thinking this has got to be a unicorn election where that doesn't happen because the American people have got to send the Republican Party a strong message that we're fed up with where you're going and what you're saying and what you're doing. And I think the American people actually sent that message. Uh, now, the question is, will the Republican Party heed the message or not? My fear is that they won't uh, and that they won't listen this time. And they're just intent on going all the way off the cliff. Uh, but I do think the American people have helped by sending a message to Republicans. And that's the only reason, by the way, that you see you see Mike Pompeo and these other folks standing up now and calling Donald Trump a loser and saying that we ought that they ought to go in a different direction. If the American people had not sent such a strong message, there's no way these guys would be standing up there and saying that. So I'm still hopeful that over the next two years, you know, even given all the chaos I'm expecting with the presidential primary, with this infighting in the House Republican conference, I'm still hopeful that maybe they will go in a different direction. Yeah, and I think we didn't we didn't see a red wave, right? Which is which was right. joyous, and we we saw a real understanding of you know rights, for instance, being necessary, and the idea that you should be able to make a decision about your own body between you and your doctor without your local officials involved, as Mehmet Oz put it in debate right. in Pennsylvania. I think yeah. that the more that we lean into that, also, you know, the fact that democracy still hangs in the balance and the fact that our rights still hang in the balance, the more that drum gets beaten, the more we stand together on that across identities and issues. You know, I think I think we'll head into 2024 with the momentum, I hope, of the midterms at our back. I'm sure you share that view. I think we will. No, I think you're right. Absolutely. Um, so I have to ask you the three questions we ask all of our guests. These are the fun ones. Um, what keeps you going? <laughs> well, you know, right now, really my family, yeah. um, you know, we're in session. We're only in session like 130, 140 days a year. And so I'm back home a lot. And my wife, Anna, and I, we have a six-month-old daughter. Uh, I know. Congratulations, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. You know, if I look tired, it's because our agreement, because I'm gone so much, obviously, uh, and my wife, you know, she's alone with our three kids when I'm gone. So our agreement is that I'm the one that will wake up at night when I'm home. <laughs> but when we're home, and I'm home for like six or seven weeks straight, you know, after a few weeks, it starts to get to me. Um, yeah. But no, it's been great, you know, and I I have taken over the years that I've been in Congress uh, solace in that. Um, but that keeps me going. But also, like, I still fundamentally believe I grew up in a family that was really involved in grassroots politics. My parents were both involved in the Mexican-American civil rights movement of the 1960s and 70s. And I grew up believing that when government works right, it can help create opportunity in people's lives. And I still fundamentally believe that, uh, as crazy as things get sometimes. And so that's my work, right? It's to build the infrastructure of opportunity for the people I represent in San Antonio, but also for the country uh, as a whole. Yeah, I love that. I mean, it's it's funny how all that stuff sticks with us. You know, I have two little kids also, not nearly so young, but the <laughs> way in which everything I'm doing out in the world is always for their future, you know, is the thing that kind of, I think, motivates so many of us to kind of keep going. And, um, you know, I'm from an original Democratic fam Party family too. My, <laughs> my mother refused to buy grapes when I was four years old in the supermarket oh, because wow. she was supporting Cesar Chavez. <laughs> and that yeah, was the yeah, first, yeah. yeah, that was the first time I became aware of 
the farm workers movement. Right. Um, and I was little, you know, we, I, I, I have this memory of talking to my dad from the backseat of the car about um, how he couldn't vote for Gerald Ford in 1976 because yeah. it just was the wrong thing to do. So I've been at this a long time as well. <laughs> different, different modes of change, but I understand that completely. Um, next question. What are your most pressing concerns about the state of America and the state of the world right now? Well, number one, our own democracy and what we saw before the election. And again, we'll see what how much they continue it. I think they're going to keep it up, but hopefully they've been tempered by the American people. Uh, the undoing of democracy and moving towards autocracy, moving towards fascism by the yeah. Republican Party led in the spirit of and the example of Donald Trump. And that's why I said the American people had to really reject that. I feel like they... They have done that, you know, but we'll see if, if the Republicans heed the call. Uh, so pre preserving our democracy, you know, we have tried, as you know, in Congress on different electoral reforms to protect our democracy. Uh, um, you know, we kind of get some of these through. You still got some folks who are hardcore election deniers that are in the different states. Uh, my worry is that in 2024, uh, Joe Biden gets re if he decides to run, he gets reelected or a Democrat gets reelected or gets elected. And then. There are a group of people in Congress who, again, try to block the election. So number one is protecting our own democracy. We can't be an example to the world if our democracy crumbles in front of us here in the United States. Uh, you, you know, I'm on the Intelligence Committee. I'm on the Foreign Affairs Committee. So I also spend a lot of time thinking about America's relationship to the world, what's going on in the world. All of that is, is becomes a lot harder if our own democracy is at stake. So that's the big one is protecting voting rights, protecting our democracy. And then continuing to help people bounce back from this pandemic. And, you know, a lot of people I represent are small businesses. It took a hard toll on them, on people's lives, and people are still trying to bounce back. Uh, and then finally, just, you know, to pick a third one is America's role in the world. Uh, fortunately, under President Biden and the Democratic administration, uh, we have helped the United States. He's helped the United States become a North Star again and help countries of the world trust the United States again because President Trump had been so damaging to that. Uh, so continuing that work. Yeah, I, I, I feel you on all of those. You know, I, I, I truly hope, uh, I don't know, I don't know how this is going to be possible with the House, but gosh, I have my fingers crossed and I believe in miracles. I would love to see the Freedom to Vote Act passed. I mean, it, right. that and the Women's Health Protection Act are kind of like my two yeah, big right. top level agenda issues, right? Right. No, I mean, that's right. I mean, like I said, you know, there there's just so many issues. I mean, they're going to go after a yeah. national abortion ban. We've got to stop them on that. Uh, fortunately, you've got the Senate uh, as a backstop and the presidency, right? But, you know, we don't know what's going to happen in 2024. We've got a bunch right. of Senate seats up in 24. We've got a presidential race. Of course, you know, they're, they're going to have control of the House, although I think we can win it back in 24. Uh, but we can't take any of that for granted. Like, we have to make sure we're continuing to work on these issues and then for 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 people who are uh, you know going through the very malicious decisions and legislation that has been passed in quote unquote red states uh, like my home state of Texas and other states, we got to make sure that we're a voice for them and standing up for them as well. I'm very concerned also about the proposals that are out there with regard to trans kids and non-binary kids and gender identity, and I know that's happened at the state level in Texas and. Yeah. I follow a few activists where like whole families have actually left the state since then. And 
they're clearly flagging it. I, you know, for me, it's very personal because I have a non-binary child, and I, I am. I, I think that there is such a need for our federal government also to really take a stand on this. And I know Joe Biden has tried to do certain things with regard to this right. with the regulations, the Department of Education, and the like. But um, I think we're going to see so much more amplification of that. And you know, I just thank you for um, for for bringing these issues to the fore and also being aware of the ways in which you know it impacts families like mine, um, because yeah. even having people out there fighting against these sorts of nationwide bans that are, you know, about our rights and about people's ability to live and be free. Um, it really matters so much, right? It's both sad and disgusting how a political party has to make a group of people a target to feed the fear and resentment that helps them win elections. And they have chosen they've done it for a while, but they've chosen over the last, I would say, two or three years, this intense focus on trans kids, uh, non-binary kids. And, you know, as you know, there are, I mean, these kids oftentimes at school are already getting bullied, already struggling with their own identity. And then for a whole political party to, to in many places, put its own weight against them and their families uh, you know, and you mentioned families leaving Texas, and and I get it. You know, if you become a target like that, then to protect your kids, I understand if people leave, but that's also exactly what Republicans want. Yes. They want you gone, right? They want the people who can't afford health insurance that are too poor to afford health insurance and the state won't expand Medicaid. If you need services and you can't get them in Texas, they want you gone. They want you to go to New Mexico or Colorado or somewhere else. And so this cycle for them just reinforces itself where they'll go after groups or they'll ignore groups and not, you know, not service them the way they need. And they want you to leave. And if you leave, and again, I don't blame people for leaving, if, you know, if because right. you need the services or you're trying to escape the bullying. But for them, it reinforces these politics. Uh, it's just it's a vicious, vicious kind of politics and cycle. Yeah. And to me, part of it is also like, you know, where is what happened to compassion? What happened to, yeah. you know, understanding that um, that people are people and they deserve to be who they are and they deserve to be free. Right. And that's part of what's painful to me about it also is that when you're targeting children in particular, you're targeting um, victims of rape and incest. You're, t you're, you're targeting people who are incredibly vulnerable. Right. At a moment where they they would ordinarily rely on um, on the support of our society and our government maybe more than otherwise, right? And so that in particular just seems so cruel. And I know there's that meme out there, the cruelty is the point, but I have right. to say that, you know, I, I I hope that kindness and dignity and love and respect will prevail, right? That's one of the things that I think we're fighting for so hard. Um, all right, last question. We've already talked a lot about this, but uh, but I'm interested to hear what you say. I'm, you know, we, our audience is made up of activists and organizers and, uh, yeah. you know, even people in their local communities who are, you know, running for city council or um, organizing their neighbors for a candidate that they care about. Um, I'm curious what your advice is, you know, as we're now past the midterms, heading into another presidential election cycle in the current environment, what your advice is to people about how to really continue to make change on all these issues that we talked about? Well, first, I want to say thank you to everybody who has been active and activated the last several years, especially starting in 2017. And you talked about family separation and, you know, you remember the Muslim ban and all these things that 
that people got really activated on. But you know what? It gets tiring for folks. Right? It, it wears on you. It wears on your soul uh, and your energy and so forth. So I want to say thank you. And I also want to say that, you know, please don't give up. Uh, we still, the threat is not gone to our country, to our democracy, uh, to other rights as well. So please, I hope that the holidays with everybody will give people a chance to, 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 to kind of refresh themselves and get some more energy. You know, please take the time, find the time and the ways to, to refresh your spirit because we need everybody in the fight. You know, we're not out of the woods, so to speak. Um, and I just want to say thank you to everybody for doing that. Please stay on top of your elected officials, both Democrats and Republicans, uh, to do the right thing in many different issues, right? Uh, it's going to take everybody's voice and everybody's energy and activism and spirit to make sure that this country comes out of what has been a dark period by a major political party, a very dark period. It's going to take everybody's energy and activism to get out of it uh, and to get us back on track to where where we should be and where I think we can be as a nation. That is a fantastic note to end on. Representative Joaquin Castro, this has been a, a tremendous pleasure. Thank you for taking time out of your really busy schedule to talk with me today and to talk to our audience today. And I'm wishing you the best of luck as you enter Thank your you. 10th year in Congress. Yeah, absolutely. Excited to see what the future brings in the next two years for you. And, uh, and uh, let's stay in touch. <laughs> Thank you. Keep doing great things. Take Thanks. care. And we'll be right back. Okay, so I hope you understand now why I was so excited about sharing this one with all of you. So many great takeaways from this discussion. I think that one of the things that I walked away from this conversation thinking about was how none of us can be complacent about the fact that our democracy is still under grave threat. And while the midterms did prove a point and did demonstrate a real pushback against rising fascism in America, we still have so much work to do, and that threat is not gone. I'd invite all of you this week to think about how, as Representative Castro suggested, you're going to find the time over the next few weeks to regenerate and rest so that we can all stay focused thereafter uh, on all the work that is left to be done, how we can continue to keep up the pressure, how we can continue to grow our engagement and our investment in the future of this country and in the salvation of democracy. I'm so grateful to all of you for being here. I'm so thankful for Representative Castro and his willingness to be present for this interview and to share all of that good wisdom and service and thought with us. Thanks so much, and I'll see you here next week. Thanks for listening to Living Through It with ECM, a podcast for interesting times. If you want to know more about me, Elizabeth Cronice McLaughlin, head on over to GaiaLeadershipProject.com, where you can check out all our in-person and virtual leadership programs for folks who want to create change at work, at home, and in the world. You can also read my essays on politics, law, and change at newsletterwithecm.substack.com. And last, but definitely not least, you can listen to all our episodes of Living Through It ad-free over on Patreon at patreon.com slash living through it. That's patreon.com slash living through it. Thanks for listening and see you next week.